price are you talking about, sir? The price of freedom is dead. Suppose I throw a lot of beans on a table. Depending on my interests, I can classify them in a lot of different ways. I say big, light beans and heavy beans, big beans and in volume and little beans, brownish beans and grayish beans. I could even number them. Concerning the Cook County Jail. In December 2019, a Southsider named Philip Triantafilo was arrested and taken to Cook County Jail. The arrest stemmed from a personal dispute that ended in a fist fight at a bar in the Hedgewick neighborhood. The dispute was a personal matter. Philip had been dating someone who was a bartender, and a patron at the bar where she worked had been regularly harassing her at work bringing her awkward gifts and abusing her long-standing friendship by sending her lewd and inappropriate text messages. Justifiably concerned, Philip approached this man, whose name is Jimmy Berezky, and confronted him about his behavior at the same bar. Berezky, a former Chicago police officer, responded with drunken belligerence, becoming aggressive immediately. The heavily inebriated man, who was also a frequent cocaine user, and who was most certainly very high at the time of the incident, proceeded to threaten Philip with violence against his entire family, emphasizing in speech that he is a retired cop with easy access to municipal violence and retribution. Philip, no longer able to restrain himself after weeks of subtle abuse from this man, lashed out and gave the drunkard a lesson that won't soon be forgotten. Philip, as it happens, is a professional heavyweight boxer. Needless to say, the fight that was instigated by Berezky did not end well for that degenerate, who suffered multiple blows to the head and ended up on the floor begging for mercy. As it happened, Berezky suffered no serious or life-threatening injuries, and he continued to drink alcohol and consume cocaine that night. The next morning, however, the institutional machinery sprang to life, and a warrant was issued for Philip's arrest. Suddenly, the story was that Berezky had been hurt very badly. Within no time at all, Philip was arrested at his home without incident and taken to Cook County Jail, where he has been held since the end of 2019. As everyone who takes such matters seriously already knows, there is a special relationship in Cook County and elsewhere between the courts and the police. Despite whatever nonsense may be codified in the law and the formal relationships between these institutional agencies, we know, beyond a shadow of any doubt, 
that a special and privileged relationship exists between these two powers. We know that the courts will do whatever it takes to protect the police, and vice versa. The police, in court, get special treatment, and there is never any exception to this condition whatsoever. As a result, Phillips' bond was set at a shocking $500,000. It was a de facto punishment issued by the courts on behalf of the police, who wanted to see punishment inflicted immediately for Berezky's sake. You see, Kim Fox's bond reforms are only substantive as long as the police don't have a personal grudge against a detainee. If, however, the police do have a grudge, then the reforms that people are fond of speaking about will absolutely have no relevance at all. This is plainly and obviously evidenced by this bond amount, which is utterly ridiculous for charges whose maximum penalty would be a two to five year prison sentence. No one, of course, should be denied freedom based solely on their economic situation. And so cash bond systems are fundamentally immoral and classist. But it is still worth mentioning that in the jail, side by side with Phil, there are other inmates who are facing much, much more serious charges, and who, as if miraculously, have lower bond amounts. The reason is, again, the special relationship between the courts and the police, which is considered from an institutional point of view to be much more important and overriding than any progressive politics could ever be. The high bond was a way of guaranteeing that Philip would have to do several months in jail at an absolute minimum during the pre-trial phase, no matter what the eventual outcome of the case might be. After the arrest, the entire mainstream media in Chicago launched into a coordinated assault on Phillips' character. The quote-unquote journalism, if we wish to lower ourselves to call it that, was nothing more than copy-and-pasted snippets from the police report, given directly to journalists by the police. The groveling work of publishing the police's information was carried out by David Struitt of the Sun-Times, William Lee of the Chicago Tribune, and others who simply copied their articles. Without an ounce or a millisecond of critical work or judgment, these sad and contemptible individuals all bounce to action. Obediently, they produce state-sanctioned narratives about what had happened to the drunkard Berezky. Of course, they followed the police script very closely, and their articles were filled with lies. Some of the more obsequious journalists did happen to do a little bit of their own research, however, and their study had nothing to do with the incident. Instead, they dug up old information about Philip walking out of the ring during a boxing match due to a health issue. Of course, these feeble-minded scribes aimed to portray such information as an additional strike against Philip's character. But to anyone with a working brain, they did nothing but reveal their own shallowness and ineptitude as reporters. It was the sort of research that on one hand consisted of nothing more than a brief Google search of a person's name, and that, on the other hand, revealed how eager these scribes were to please their political masters, upon whom their unimpressive careers are wholly dependent. 
At no point during the scribe's character analysis did a single one of them bother to mention that Bereski retired early, which is to say that he was removed from the police department forcibly, but in such a way that he could leave quietly and still keep his pension. His early retirement stemmed from the fact that he was an out-of-control cop with a long list of civilian complaints against him. In one well-documented incident, he and his partner on duty ended up costing the city of Chicago more than $100,000 in an out-of-court settlement due to the on-the-job racism against a black citizen. In fact, Bereski is a racist monster who harassed black people systematically throughout his career in law enforcement. But this was never reported by Shruitt and Lee, who instead portrayed him as a helpless old man that had been brutally victimized. Such is the cowardice and careerist ambition of these so-called journalists. As a result of this slight of representation, which has been carried out in a coordinated fashion by the police, the courts, and the media, Philip is still languishing in Cook County Jail, still confronted with an unpayable bond despite asking two separate judges for house arrest, both of which denied him on grounds of public safety. Now with pandemic, the situation has taken an even more dire turn, and all of the inmates at the jail have been put at risk by the coronavirus. As a result of crisis mismanagement, Cook County Jail has become one of the most dangerous sites of contamination in the entire country, according to the New York Times. Inmate deaths are already escalating. What this means in absolutely no uncertain terms is that Philip has become a political prisoner whose life is directly threatened in an extrajudicial way. The situation constitutes a violation of constitutional rights as well as a violation of human rights. There is no doubt about the fact that he already was a political prisoner of the police and their allies in the courts. The ridiculous favor done for Bereski in the form of a $500,000 bond for a minor aggravated battery charge was already the surest sign of such corruption. But now, with the pandemic, Philip's situation is more akin to being housed in a death camp. So let us relate in absolutely crystal clear terms what is going on. Philip is a political prisoner of the courts and the police, who is being held unconstitutionally in a death camp during a pandemic. And the reason that he is there is because he justifiably defended his own honor against a drunkard and drug addict ex-cop who had to be removed from the police force dishonorably as a result of his unabating racism. In this sense, Philip's case is, unfortunately, not unique. His run-in with the vices of the police and the teaming up of the police and the courts against him are nothing new or unusual. Instead, these things are very much a well-established norm. It is, in the words of one police officer with whom I spoke, just the way it is! Or, we can think of it in the way that it was put to me by a criminal defense attorney, who told me that when you mess with the police, a new set of unwritten rules comes into play.
politics of Phillips' case relate to an unspoken untouchability that every police officer, disgraced or not, maintains. And this political oppression of a citizen by an untouchable super-citizen is only one of the many forms of political oppression represented in the jail at this moment. There are, for example, never any rich inmates in the jail, unless they have been charged with very serious crimes. And the reason for this is that they are otherwise able to bail themselves out. The bond system, in its general form, is a classist structure designed to selectively punish the poor. There is simply no other realistic way of interpreting it at all. In addition, the jail is mostly used to cage black people and brown people. The white population in the jail is much smaller, even though the city's demographics do not come close to reflecting the demographics of the jail population. This discrepancy is a symptom of a racialized criminal justice system that disproportionately targets, hunts, and cages people of color, while allowing white offenders off the hook. Nowhere was this political nature of the system more apparent in recent memory than with the mind-boggling situation involving the murder of Thomas Tanzi, who killed Kenneth Pederimos in cold blood at Richard's Bar not long ago. Despite a large number of eyewitnesses, the same media that sprang to life with the vilification of Philip suddenly went dumb after this crime was committed. All at once, their great and amazing powers of journalistic perception, expressed so vividly in their acute reporting on Philip's case, left them completely. No one, and try as they might, could discover the killer's name. It went on that way for a week and more. The name of the killer, clearly a protected individual, became the great mystery of journalism in the 21st century. David Struett, William Lee, and all of their colleagues came to find nothing, not a single clue whatsoever, as to who the man might have been. And the police also expressed themselves as being dumbfounded. No warrants were issued. It was gearing up to be a cold case, unsolved for nearly two weeks. The killer's identity was finally discovered and published privately through social media. And only after sustained public pressure from activists was a warrant finally issued for the man whom the police knew very well to be the killer all along. Thomas Tanzi, a highly unstable individual whose personal blog posts online reveal a disturbing propensity for crime and violence. But almost immediately, Tanzi was released on electronic monitoring to await his trial. Unlike Philip, and unlike so many people of color who are disproportionately held in the jail without the possibility of house arrest, and unlike so many people who simply cannot afford their bail and who do not have the kinds of political connections that can score them a house arrest on a murderous hate crime charge, Tansy is already freed from the jail. And the heroic journalists who vilified Philip have had absolutely not a peep to say about it, so concerned they are with public safety. So we see, the abomination and degree of atrocity with which we are dealing is severe. This hellhole of inhumanity, the Cook County Jail, is inherently a place of political violence, and in the current scenario, it is a death camp where unthinkable human rights violations are being committed daily in an escalating way. On a procedural level, Cook County Jail is in a state of near collapse under the weight of pandemic. It was already in bad shape from a logistical point of view before the pandemic. Guards have related to me that the situation was such that an overabundance of overtime shifts were always available because the jail's head, sh because the jail's head Sheriff Tom Dart, 
would prefer to keep costs low by maintaining a smaller staff rather than a larger one. And this also meant that it was a very common thing for guards to have to oversee two or more tiers at the same time, which is, from their point of view, practically impossible and contractually illegal. I have become privy to these and many other similar facts, and I have come to know that as a result of them, there is an extensive resentment that most of the guards feel towards their union stewards, whom they regard as nothing but company men. But as in the case of so many of these ad hoc protocols in the jail, personnel were normally confronted with the following choice. Do it the way your supervisor says to do it, or else go home and don't come back. Now, with hundreds of guards sick and or refusing to go into work, the jail's procedures are even more improvised. For example, by having all guards watch over two separate tiers, Sheriff Dart has found a way to run his prison with half of a workforce. This means that ad hoc protocols, which are always changing out of desperation, are now also being implemented in a more rushed and less thoughtful manner than ever before. The jail is in a sense doing whatever it can think of to desperately prevent anyone on the outside from knowing just how much things are in disarray. At least, this is the opinion of the guards. This means, obviously, that meaningful attempts to curtail the spread of the virus in the jail are all but non-existent. Whereas the city and the county at large might be led to believe that the jail's priority is to control the virus, in fact, the jail's only concern at this time is to protect its political image. The jail is simply concerned with keeping its own head above water in the media. This has been confirmed to me by a large number of personnel that feel entirely abandoned by the jail's administrators, who issue orders to them from safe remote locations in well-insulated offices. If guards feel entirely abandoned and sacrificial, one only has to guess what this means for the day-to-day -day logistics of inmate care. As it happens, there is no need to guess, for I will tell you, soap rations have been reduced. Meals have become more irregular than before, and they were already irregular. Hygiene and cleanliness in general are both impossible and abysmal, and there has been no power washing or disinfecting of any of the facilities. One inmate told me that sick prisoners are all on one inmate told me that sick prisoners are on all decks, and that the reported numbers of infections in the media are off by several hundreds of cases. The same is true of guards, who are still being pressured to come back to work, even if they are exhibiting symptoms. What must be understood, however, is that Sheriff Dart is a politically savvy monster, and he has plenty of schemes up his sleeve for fudging the numbers and juking the stats as usual. For example, according to guards, he is refusing to let any of the dead be counted as coronavirus deaths, unless an autopsy has been conducted. And at the same time, he is preventing the conduct of autopsies. The same apparently goes for infections in general. If a person is exhibiting symptoms, but has not been tested, they're not counted. The natural result of this, due to Dart's style of management, is that hundreds of untested positive cases are very likely to exist in that place, yet go undiscussed. 
If a patient appears to be very obviously ill, they are sometimes sent off to Stroger Hospital and not allowed to return, which means that the case is not counted in the jail statistics. Sheriff Dart, himself a domestic abuser who is hated even by his own staff, runs a jail institution that constitutes a crime against humanity. And the managerial tone that he sets trickles down throughout his institution. As one might expect, it is the sort of place that rewards and encourages the most violent and unsteady types of law enforcement professionals, offering promotion and job security for those who are ready to mimic its violence while gradually pushing out any who might have the slightest notion in their heads of institutional reform. In this way, the badness of the institution is self-regulating and self-maintaining. It reproduces itself by virtue of its own simple repetition. What is perhaps most striking right now, in the context of global pandemic, is the way that this egregious crime against humanity has been widely ignored by civil society. After the release of so-called nonviolent offenders from Cook County Jail, the public discourse on this institution has fallen all but silent. It seems as though our leaders are fully satisfied with this temporary condition. It is, apparently, no longer an emergency. We are to believe that all that can be done has already been done, and that the situation is to be regarded as good enough. What we must take from this, indeed, what we have no choice but to learn from this, is that anyone in jail for anything considered by the law and the police to be violent has been placed in a legal state of exception in which their rights as a citizen and as a subject of law have been suspended. They are, like an animal, no longer seen to be a human subject endowed with all of the rights and privileges afforded to people by constitutional law. In the calculus of social safety, of social risk, they have become sacrificial lambs. Their own fate has been deemed irrelevant on the basis that the police and the courts have charged them with a crime for which they have not been convicted. Their punishment is not only preemptive with respect to any conviction in a court of law, but it has also been opened up to the possibility of limitless sentencing in the form of extrajudicial execution. Make no mistake about it. All prisoners who die of coronavirus in the jails and the prisons are victims of state execution. And it is an execution that was decided by jail managers, and not necessarily by the courts. In the case of Cook County Jail, this means that none other than Sheriff Dart is the extrajudicial executioner of those who fall sick and die under his watch. He is, in an absolutely unequivocal sense, their murderer. Philip's case remains pending in all of this. It is unclear when he will see a judge, as criminal courts are suspended for trials. Habeas corpus, that bedrock of constitutional law, has evaporated. Yet this has not stopped the police from filling the jails with more bodies. It only means that once you're there, you have absolutely no chance of leaving, until the pandemic crisis has come to an end. For now, it seems we are powerless to do anything except wait and see precisely how much or how little our so-called leaders are prepared to send our friends and loved ones to their grave. <laughs>